Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and this is the third episode in the Bronco Posse adjunct lecture series. Today's guest is Maya Jeffra, a writer, artist, curator, and faculty in the English and theater and dance departments. Uh, Maya moved throughout their childhood, but most identifies the South as home, and uh, Maya teaches writing, drama, media, and cultural studies at Santa Clara, and is the founding editor and production designer for queer literary collaborative Foglifter Press. In this conversation, we discuss the eclectic styles and themes of Maya's books, thoughts on memory and perception and how childhood is affecting us now, and we get Maya's advice for students and answers to the questions I ask everyone at the end of podcasts. So yeah, this is a fun conversation, and here we go. You uh, primarily teach in the English department, but also uh, work with the the dance department, right? So kind of how do you see those two areas blending together? And and how do you, um, in academia, kind of like think about the different... The different disciplines and, and all your your interests there because you seem to be doing pretty interdisciplinary work yeah you know and even that term is just kind of uh, a testament of our late capitalistic culture because these aren't particular disciplines to make discrete in the first place right um, <laughs> I mean if we think about it the university was all just rhetoric you know, at one point it was just talking about things and, you know, now we have departments and we have programs and, and so I really don't see it as being something that I need to negotiate. It already is interdisciplinary. They feed off of each other. In fact, it probably enhances my knowledge in both. Your, your first book was called the first church of what's happening. Can you maybe say a few words on kind of the, the topics there, why you, uh, developed an interest in that area and why you wanted to write the book. Yeah, it is interesting. I didn't write essays until that book. Um, I mean, I wrote scholarship and I wrote fiction and poetry. Um, so I was, I was definitely in, in those kind of, uh, well, discreet. <laughs> I was really making discreet the elements of my life, but I started writing that book in maybe 2014. And I think a lot of it had to do with the technological dissociation that I was seeing with people. Uh, it had everything to do with social media. And I was seeing an evolution of the way empathy was being applied in uh, interpersonal communications. And I was concerned. But then I was also trying to not just demonize it, you know, much like an, an, you know, an OK Boomer kind of situation. I didn't I didn't want to necessarily think about, you know, this emerging form of communication and the way it was shifting our culture as purely a negative. So the first book is really navigating this idea of a high technological, low empathy America. And how do we negotiate that? What is the resilience that we need to possess, you know, in light of that and what, um, strengths of it could we, could we maybe, um, examine and cultivate in a way that would, would help 
enhance empathy um, in a relatively divisive time, right? Yeah, yeah. What's an example of how we can advance empathy in our time <laughs> with that culture? Ooh, any, that's a any, good question. Any answers in the book? <laughs> yeah, you know, I... I explore them. I don't have many answers in the book. I have a lot of questions. Um, But one of the things that that keeps coming up or kept coming up recurring in all the essays that I was writing was this idea of eliminating call out culture altogether and instead redirecting anger in other uh, various formats. Um, I mean, I'm going to keep that very vague because I'm not certain. Um, (laughs) But I think it's more attitudinal than it is um, anything that we need to do in an applied way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you mentioned to me right before that you're uh, you have plans to come out with several other books over the next couple of years. It'll be a busy time, I'm sure. But how, how do you First, how do you decide on like a book project you want to pursue? And then maybe uh, if you want to touch on like one or two and kind of the ideas and thinking behind that. So one of my mentors, Junts Kim, says that there are structured writers and there are free writers. Um, I'm a free writer. I usually will just begin writing and about exactly what I'm thinking about. And I use the writing process in order to kind of make sense of my world. You know, Zadie Smith has a really great phrase. I'm going to bastardize it, but it's along the lines of I write so that I don't sleepwalk through my life. Um, And so, you know, I write for myself primarily. And, you know, most of that writing, which will never see the light of day, I begin to I begin to make connections between the things I'm writing and then from there maybe a book idea will emerge but it's usually about halfway through all the writing that I've done. Huh. Um, so for example, the book that's coming out in March is called The Fabulous Ecrastic Fantastic and what I was noticing was I was I was writing through my relationships to certain artworks mm-hmm. and gleaning a couple themes that kept reemerging. Um, about gender, about sexuality, but also about perception and memory and how those two things constructed, you know, my purview and also my own kind of self-reflections of identities. Knowing the the relative problematic nature of perception and memory, Hmm. right? So through those artworks, I was reflecting on these things. And then I started researching the science of perception and memory, which is very limited in many regards, actually. And, and then that started having me think about my own life and my own, the way that I recall memories in my life and how they've, they've constructed me. So, uh, it, it was just, it was circuitous, but those things kind of came together. And then, I had about a third of the essays um, kind of written in this freestyle, but then I started seeing the motifs and I started exploring them more in a, a structured way. And huh. so that built that book. Huh. Um, yeah. The same is true for um, the collection of short fiction that's coming out next year. I just write a lot about violence because I grew up in a very violent place um, huh. in uh, Baltimore in uh, public housing. And so... I just noticed that a lot of my stories had violence as kind of the center of 
of the narrative. And so I, I start asking myself, like, why am I doing that? <laughs> right. And I start researching the nature of violence and, um, you know, social violences and linguistic violences and realizing that, oh, there's something to say about this if I wanted to create a collection. And so then I started to more pointedly write stories, um, tackling certain themes. So it felt like if this was going to be a book about violence, that I was I was doing it justice and making it as comprehensive as I could. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. And in one of my classes, we were had had the assignment to first think of like almost every event we could that that happened in our life, and we've kind of been studying these other uh, leaders, like you know Howard Schultz of Starbucks, who rely a lot on kind of their past experience and the lessons learned from that in their their leadership style so yeah i and 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 one theme that keeps coming up is this idea that you know many people are reliving their childhood in a certain way you know maybe it's a super strict uh basketball coach who had you know very disciplinarian parents or something like that and they feel this need to be a perfectionist now uh but yeah i'm i'm kind of curious now kind of about your your upbringing like were, were there any themes important themes that you have kind of shaped you into the person today or ways that you developed these interests in in writing or literature or activism or and like could you see any of those roots in your earlier life <laughs> yeah and you know if you would have asked me this question before i started writing the ekphrastic fantastic oh. which i don't usually write memoir uh it would have been a completely different answer. I think I would have had a projected series of events that I thought shaped me. But as a result of writing cultural criticism that started to evoke my memoir and evoke memory and how that memory constructed me, it changed. So, you know, historically, I would have said something along the lines of, you know, being a first generation college student really shaped me. You know, growing up in project housing as a white person um, shaped me. Um, Moving around a lot as a military brat shaped me, right? But what I realized is those kind of larger generalities were not what kept coming up in, Hmm. in the constructions of my memory. It became glimpses instead. Um... The fact that my my mother left um, my family when I was seven and I didn't see her for three years, watching my brother kind of descend into a little bit of a madness and um, and drug and alcohol abuse moments in college where I was misunderstood as a queer southern um, kid in the 90s. Um, you know, things that I really don't think about too much um, kept recurring in in my um, associations of memory when I was writing. And I realized how much they shaped me. Um, I, a random one. I, I rushed a fraternity in my sophomore year of college because um, they had never given a bid to an openly gay male before. Right. And so at first I thought it was going to be this, you know, triumphing moment. But then. What sticks with me about it is kind of the psychosexual relationship of brothers, you know, in in that kind of environment and um, the very tight relationships I formed through the cultish kind of rite of passage that is involved in hazing. You know, so, I mean, that actually became something that kept reoccurring and, you know, really shaped me without me realizing. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to be 
honest about the the potentially like smaller or unexpected moments that may have shaped us more than the the standard answers or what what we'd what would first come to mind yeah yeah uh, what do you think are yours I think just so I grew up in Davis a couple couple oh, hours yeah. away so um that decision so I was born in San Francisco and then when I was around three or four my parents moved to Davis and I think uh there's there's a lot of like subtle um, and small moments of just having you know really like like the reason we moved there was because Davis has good public schools right and having really good like elementary school teachers I think as I was kind of writing that that list of all those events and kind of thinking back on all those first through sixth grade like teachers and that that relative uh, stability I think but you know before I was twelve uh, really did like influence me and then one other thing quickly that that comes to mind is so I played baseball a lot I was almost this tall and when I was younger uh which was which really one kind of like changed my relationship with all the other kids being like a foot taller right it's a fun process for sure of kind of applying an, a new lens to things that maybe you've kind of glanced over about yeah. your past and it yeah, another one that comes to mind just really quick. And yeah. you want to talk about an innocuous <sighs> moment or maybe not, right? Um, as I wrote, this came up twice. Um, and it, it relates to what you're talking about. You were the tall kid. Yeah. I was the short one. Okay. And in sixth grade, I'll never forget this. Um, we were in our sex ed class. Mm. And the teacher, we were talking about puberty. And the teacher asked myself and Alfred Jump to get up in the front of the sta- in the front of the classroom and she used us as examples of the spectrum of puberty that someone our age would be going through referring to Alfred as being like see Alfred has already started right and and I hadn't oh my god and you can imagine yeah. uh, that that leaves an indelible mark in kind of how you construct your identity and I feel like hmm. Who knows? Maybe that moment did something to the construction of the way that I saw like masculinity or manhood that otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have been purview to. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. To kind of bring it back here to Santa Clara, Uh what's like a message or a, a skill or a trait that you hope your students learn through your classes? Well, to not evaluate something before you ask questions of it. I, I think that is probably one of the big takeaways in all my classes. And, you know, we're, we're a Yelp culture. So mm-hmm. we have become more and more where we, we come upon something, we observe something, but the observation is very quick and we move right into an evaluative um, space. And, you know, it just delimits all the possibility of curiosity that might come out through if we if we were to first look at the thing as a phenomenon right ask questions about it and you know investigate it and then maybe evaluate later um Mm -hmm. i think we've just kind of truncated that that intermediate process Mm -hmm. um so i i think that's one of the things i ask I ask of them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I demand of them quite a bit, depending on how you look at it. Um, and just to be curious, you know, yeah. to be, to stare at things, to literally stare at things um, and to feel comfortable with that, to sustain kind of that relationship and, you know, see the world as, as new as you can. What is, what, what is your experience as an adjunct been like in Santa Clara? Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, I have I have an interesting circumstance because I was in a tenured position hmm. um, in Los Angeles and and even up here. I, I moved up here and was in a you know a stable um, position, but. I wanted to remove myself from that institution because I, I didn't like some of the the ethics of the way it was being run. And it was a much smaller school. I had the privileges of, of knowing what a tenured experience was like. With that being said, I really appreciate the the focus on ethics here. Mm-hmm. You know, the ethical question is brought up. <laughs> Even though it doesn't always adhere to, you know, the outcomes don't always seem to adhere to a Jesuit value, but I really appreciate Jesuit values. Now, with that being said, you know, adjuncts don't get to participate in governance and some of them are the most talented people um, that we have on the campus, energetic. But, you know, the new economic model for colleges is precluding more and more faculty from being in positions where they can also participate in the governance, mm-hmm. right? So that's frustrating, especially because I I teach because I love I love collegial environments. While Santa Clara tries hard to extend that collegiality to their adjunct lecturers, at the same time, they don't, mm-hmm. you know, because we we don't participate in governance, right? My experience overall here has been a positive one. But there's a, a lot of people that are in the dark and, you know, they don't feel like they can contribute in the way that they want to, you know, as, as faculty. Yeah, totally. Just a couple quick questions that I like to ask at the end of, uh, of podcasts. So uh, you, you already kind of touched on what I typically ask around, like um, advice or things you want students to take away. So then the, the next is um, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Um, other than buy my book uh, (laughs) that I mean to make it relate to things that we've already mentioned the divisiveness of our culture currently especially social uh, social and political is our own fault Mm. Um, we I think it lends itself to the evaluative culture that we have um of course, our language already has kind of a binary system kind of built into it where it's yes, no, uh, male, female, you know, this team or that team. But that has become, you know, perpetuated by um, the 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 newer forms of, of technological communication that we've embraced. It's so much easier to um, evaluate because we're dissociated, right? I guess that would be the great message that it is our fault that we are are reducing our empathy because we are not um, opening ourselves up to even allowing ourselves to be in conversation with people that think other than us, right? We live in our own filter bubble and um, that's really dangerous and we're we're the ones that are eroding democracy, not not the people that we're electing. They're just a symptom. Yeah. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? (laughs) Um, Toppling the patriarchy. Uh, (laughs) An ideal Saturday. Uh, Hike with my dog. Read a story. Be inspired by that story to maybe emulate it in some form of uh, writing that uh, engenders my own thinking. Mm -hmm. 
having a glass or a bottle of wine <laughs> and maybe doing a little dancing. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for participating. Yeah, Appreciate thank it. you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.